Hello and a warm welcome to the Centre-Left Politics Podcast with me, Carl Quilliam, and Malcolm Clark. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the summer recess and are ready for the busy summer to autumn feast of politics. Remember that new episodes arrive every week on Fridays at 5pm and we're now hopefully back to a weekly schedule. We're also delighted to be joined by our guest host this week, Owen Gardner. Welcome, Owen. Thanks for being here. Do you want to give us a short introduction for our listeners before we kick off? Of course, yeah, we'll do. Um, firstly, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm Owen. Uh, I'm a Labour Party member, obviously, uh, and uh, academic historian, and also um, the only party political parish councillor in Walsingham. So, fantastic. Brilliant to have you. So before we look ahead to what we'll cover this week, how was the how was the second half of your recess break, Malcolm? Um, yeah, for Owen's benefit, we we always talk about something random at the beginning, so we get all sorts of things. Like updates about Carl's washing machine, uh, all sorts of fun things that you know people who listen to our show. <laughs> and sadly, sadly, I like that. Sort of I've only ever been to. asked about that part of the show off someone who asked me what how Carl's washing machine was, and that was legit. The only time I had a question about the podcast was. That's what calls washing machine. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's been. It was, was it? Um, go on. How is the washing machine? All right, so far the the dryer's still not working, but we've given oh. up on that. So. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, we uh, I've had a good second half, Carl. Um, very very warm. It seems to have returned this week. Um, so I'm suffering a little bit with the heat. I don't do heat well. I don't do the cold well either. So I, you know, I'm pretty much just ill all the time. Um, but yeah, it's been good. I'm glad the politics is back. It's uh, started off with a bang, obviously, with a lot of different stuff going on. And uh, judging that we got a week, we got an hour out of last week's topics. This week's a great topic, so we should be here for the rest of the night, I think. But um, yeah, it's been good. How, how about you? Did you enjoy the, the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I went. I went to Centre Parks um, in in Picardy, in France. First, my first time driving across the Channel. Uh, obviously had you a night. Remember to take with... the tunnel, otherwise it gets a bit wet. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that was. I mean, that was bad. That was... <laughs> you, you clearly getting been getting rusty over the summer, Malcolm. It's the... <laughs> I'll, I'll be back. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I was just going to complain about um, the border controls on the way back because I was stuck for over an hour waiting, um, and I, I can't get a refund because it's not the fault of. Uh, Eurostar is the fault of the Home Office, so I'll be writing a strongly worded letter to Suella Bruffman. <laughs> I'm sure she will give me Sympathize. some... Yeah. <laughs> Your plight, yeah. Um, but yeah, so yeah, otherwise, yeah, lo- lovely holiday and um, kind of glad to be back in some ways, because um, this was our first proper kind of school summer holidays where we had to kind of balance six weeks of keeping a small person busy and entertained while we worked and did other things. So it's, um, yeah, it's sort of nice to be back in a way. How about you, and How was your summer? Did you go away? Uh, no, I've been here all the time. Uh, watching. Just, just waiting for the podcast. <laughs> Sorry? Just waiting for the podcast. Waiting for the podcast, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but I was just watching sort of ever-increasing streams of HGVs coming down our very narrow road. Uh, and... Um, there's only not also oh, I fell into the road the other day, uh, and people were surprised because we haven't got a crossing anywhere from Walsingham down to Killip that's safe. Uh, so it's um, so yeah, it's, it's fascinating living in the countryside. Really fascinating. 
the parish council business pretty much also. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that sounds like a proper parish council campaign going. Um, all right, well, should we uh, move into the discussion for, for this week? Um, this week we're going to cover Labour's reshuffle, who are the winners and losers, the rack in school buildings, the... Um, Government Schools Week that has been going so well. Uh, Birmingham City Council uh, issues a Section 114 notice, which I'm sure everybody listening knows exactly what that is, but we'll talk about it later. Uh, By-election watch, um, we've got quite a quite a few coming. I mean, we've had a few, and we've got quite a few coming. Mid-Bedfordshire, Margaret Ferrier's old seat, and the, well, now very likely by-election in Chris Pinch's seat of Tamworth. Um, so, Labour's reshuffle. Malcolm, do you want to kick us off with a bit of an overview of, of what's happened, where we are? Yeah, I'll just give the objective bit first and I'll come back in with opinion later on. Um, so yeah, it happened quite quite quickly actually. Uh, right back on the first day back, it was pretty much announced the night before that he was going to do it. Um, it obviously gets leaked out to the right people to make sure that it's known. Um, he left the top jobs as is. So people like Bridget Phillips and Rachel Reeves, West Street and Yvette Cooper, another band. The sort of big hitters who hold the big portfolios, they didn't move. Um, there's always the, given what's happened in the past, the interest in what was going to be done with Angela Rayner. There's a few jokes jumping around that says, you know, every time she has a meeting with Keir Starmer, she comes out with an extra job. Um, but, you know, she, she did eventually get um, the levelling up post, as well as Shadow Deputy Prime Minister. Aligning her to sort of a meaningful portfolio, which I th- as well as just being deputy leader, that's you know in a government situation, that on its own, as as we know, doesn't really amount to anything. So it gives her like a specific brief. Um, and we had other people, so quite a lot of movement apart from the top jobs. There was a lot of other movement. Um, Peter Kyle to uh, science, innovation, technology. Uh, Steve Reed replacing Jim McMahon, who stood down as a shadow environment secretary, and a return to the front bench of a number of. Uh, people calling Blairites as Hillary Benn, Pat McFadden, um, promotions for Shabina Mahmood um, and Darren Jones, who's performed well as Business Select Committee Chair. Um, so I guess, Carl, there was a, a question and, and the, the media obviously jumped in and my local MP uh, and, and Owens as well uh, said that this had the fingerprints of Mandelson all over it, which I thought was just disgraceful, <laughs> given that there's no suggestion at all that Peter Mandelson even spoke to Keir Starmer about this. But anyway... They have to have to try something, <clears throat> but uh, yes, that's that's basically where we are. How was uh, I'll pass back to you, Carlton, uh, in terms of how how you saw it, and then obviously you want to hear one's opinions as well. Yeah, so I, I mean, I don't, I mean, maybe Peter Mandelson had a discussion with someone at some point about some of this. I'm sure he would have been very happy with some of the <laughs> promotions, um, as as would some other uh, former prime ministers, but. Um, but I think I didn't see that at all. I think if if there's anyone's fingerprints on it other than Keir Starmer's, I would suggest maybe Morgan McSweeney, campaign's director. Um, so the the one that I was quite pleased to see was uh, Liz Kendall. I think she's a top quality front bench politician, and she's been probably too de- too low down the ranks for a while. And I think it's it's nice that she's been elevated and hopefully will be given a bit more airtime. Uh, Morgan McSweeney, who's now the campaign director, reportedly all over the place, quite influential with Keir, within Keir Starmer's circle, uh, helped run her leadership bid in 2015. Mm. Uh, he's also quite close to Shabana Mahmood um, and helped co-found Labour Together, 
uh, with her and some others um, in the shadow front bench. So I think if anybody other than Keir Starmer, if I was going to point to anybody, I think it would be him. Um, I might be giving him a, too much <laughs> too much power there, but I think that was notable um, alongside the, the, what you mentioned about there being a lot of Blair eyes coming to the cabinet. Um, and yeah, I think it sort of sent I think it sent the signal, you know, the, the point about it being reported in a certain way, it sent the signal that Keir Starmer wanted to send, I think, which is the, you know, the party is shifting to the centre. Uh, there are a lot of Blairites coming in and some of the sort of softer left are being shuffled to, shuffled to the side. I don't think that if you kind of look across the shadow cabinet, it, I, I don't know, I wouldn't be as kind of emphatic about that if you kind of look across the shadow cabinet, I think it is still quite a broad church across the shadow cabinet and particularly with the junior ministerial ranks. But he sent the message he wanted to send um, as far as I could see. What do you think, Owen? I think overall it's good. Uh, I mean, there's been a bit of a lack of focus. Sorry, it's a car outside. There's been a bit of a lack of focus, I think, from some people, and it's not disparaging them because they've been busy, they've had jobs to do, uh, in terms of winning. And I think the overall message mirrors the sort of internal message of focus on winning first and then get into government to affect change, which is important. Um, the one that I think is best is Hillary Benn, and I've got an interest in Northern Ireland because I did my MA there at Queen's. Um, and we need somebody who is a diplomatic and be able to bring people together in that position, especially if we want to be in government. I mean, it's a difficult and potentially poison chalice if you look at who's been there before, but with him as Shadow Secretary of State and then hopefully Secretary of State, it's giving that position some seriousness that the Tories are sort of lacking as a, a general rule uh, across the front bench. And I think Peter Carter, uh, D6, is going to be really good He's not afraid of pulling his punches and he's good at annoying the Tories to the point where they start making mistakes. And if everybody in who's been reshuffled does that, along with the top team doing it anyway, it's going to be amazing to watch. The more mistakes they make, the better for me, um, especially given that the current deputy uh, chairman of the party uh, has a thing for thumbs up and that's it. So there's no kind of policy behind it, which is... Um, Curious, but yeah, overall, really good, and it's quite exciting. Carl, I was just going to say uh, as well that this is a, a reshuffle. It's come from a, a position of strength. Um, he's, you know, Keir Starmer's in a strong position in the party, and he's able. I mean, if you know, there's obviously a lot of um, media spin in regards to him wanting to sort of create factionalism or promote, like, ex exacerbate it when, you know, it's not surprising that a leader's going to come in. And, and promote people who have you know similar views to him. I mean, you know, whatever you think about Corbyn when he was in in twenty fifteen, that's what he did. You know, and that's what Ed Miliband did, and it's what everyone does. So, um, what he has shown though is that he's willing to go perhaps further than you would need to go in some ways. You know, there's always been attempts by people to have, you know, what what we would call a broad church that we know the Labour Party is, um, but he's certainly not done that. I think I don't anticipate there'll be any more significant changes. At this point, we are now very quickly at a point where probably within a year of a general election, and I've heard there is rumours, um, and someone who works for a Conservative MP told me today that there's rumours of um, it being in May. Um, again, we'll know when we know, but um, we are getting closer, and I think 
what was interesting was, and I, and uh, the point I was going to make about Sue Gray, because obviously her first day in the job as well. Kian said in the past that he wasn't going to align necessarily align all of the shadow posts um, exactly the same as the government. He wasn't going to mirror, for example, when they changed the business ones around. He left Ed Miliband and Jonathan Reynolds where they were. Um, he has actually now broadly aligned. And I wonder if that's come from from Sue Gray, perhaps, who's as a very experienced person in the civil service, may have come in and said, look, you know, that when the government changes, that big restructure is perhaps something that you don't need to do straight away. There's plenty of other things to do in the, you know, the first 100 days or whatever. So I'd be interested in what you think about that, um, because I, I, it's interesting that that sort of subtly changed a little bit. You've got Sarah Jones, for example, going in as industry into carbonisation shadow. Um, which again isn't directly aligned, but it gives an indication that Key has perhaps rethought that slightly. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one because I think you're right. It, it largely reflects the machinery of government changes from earlier in the year, um, with two notable out uh, shadow secretary of state level. So the kind of there's been a bit more creativity, I think, with the kind of minister of state and below. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but there was various reports. And the, the one thing I would say as well, sort of alongside this, is that there's been a few over the months that we've been waiting for this reshuffle, because we've been waiting for it for a while, has <laughs> been touted. Um, but each time there's been there's been stories and the same people have come up each time and they are actually the people that have been moved so jim jim mcmahon that you talked about rosina rosina allen khan was mentioned a few times the moving of lisa nandy the piece about angela rayner was interesting because actually when it was first talked about it was actually talked about as a problem so she was it was talked about actually that they might want to demote her or take some things away from her to your point at the beginning about she she always goes in with more jobs whereas actually the leveling up job could have actually been seen you know it could have been briefed in a different way mm-hmm. it didn't, didn't didn't necessarily have to be seen as a promotion um it could have been sort of keeping her out of the way but actually it was briefed quite heavily that it was a promotion and she was a kind of key part of the team which i think is a it's a win for her and i think it will my, my view is that it'll actually strengthen the overall team if she if she's actually you know, in the tent on board and i think she's a really good campaigner um, i think that's all to the good um, but yeah, I think you're right on the machinery of government changes, like reflecting the departments just makes sense. It makes everything easier in the in the next 12 months. There were you know, all those articles I was talking about that were briefing about what might happen. Also were saying there was browse behind the scenes about people not knowing quite who should be covering what, particularly with the kind of DCIT, uh, DCMS roles and just not having to worry and spend energy on those things. I think is is all to the good, um, which also speaks a little bit. And I thought, and I'll let Owen come in in a minute, but I just wanted to mention the Rizan Alan Khan thing, because she she was one that was sort of mentioned quite a few times. There were various reports of different things saying, you know, that she'd been talked to that she should up a game and and and, uh, and things like that um, a couple of months ago. And what's come out since the reshuffle, and again, this is what's in the press, so I'm not going to say this is necessarily all exactly the letter of the truth, but she, that she was pushing to basically be reporting direct to Keir Starmer, not to West Streeting, um, to, to be basically putting policy directly through him. Um, and she, she lost that battle, and I think 
the kind of raw politics of that is she was always going to lose that battle. It wasn't a very good battle to choose to pick, given Wes is one of maybe two or three people that were never going to be moved and is incredibly influential within the Shadow Cabinet. Um, so it was a bit of an odd... I thought it was a bit odd that she chose to fight that battle and then when she lost it, wrote what was a bit of a kind of pointed resignation letter, which I think will probably keep her out of the shadow front bench for a fair while. Totally it agree. Kind of, it kind of suggests that the relationship between her and Kia has broken down quite a lot. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't have any sort of exact insight beyond what I've said on that, but it's something's gone wrong. <laughs> for to get to that point, given you know what we said at the beginning about how this shows Keir's, Keir's strength, unless he loses the next election, she's probably going to be quite far away from any any roles for a while, which I think actually is a shame. But given, I don't know what you she's think. A, a doctor as well, but yeah, I agree on, on the letter, Carl, hundred yeah. percent. Mm. I, mean, I agree as well. I mean, it's, it's a shame because we haven't got a shadow minister for mental health anymore. It's in a different situation, so it's not a specific. Thing. And to lose a qualified doctor from the front bench as well is a bit awkward uh, when there's an NHS crisis going on, to say the very least. Having said that, I think the letter she wrote was a bit, as you say, pointed, and that probably will not help. Um, but on the flip side, it does mean she's got a tiny bit more freedom to actually bring stories in from her constituency into Westminster, so that helps. But there's always that thing, don't fan the flame as you leave, basically. Um, and yeah, you're right, it will be quite a long time before she may come back. And overall, that is a shame. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing was that actually literally the day of or day after, she was all over the news because of the the issues with the t- potential terrorist <laughs> escaping from one prison in a constituency. So she was sort of sort of wall to wall in well certainly around London, but I think that obviously made national news as well. So, um, but yeah, in terms of her front bench future, might be a while. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Malcolm? No, um, I think that's that's sort of covered it. Um, I think we won't see another reshuffle before the election, so I think this is it. Um, there's always the caveat that ministers, people can you know lose seats, new people, and there are some people who are standing very likely to get elected in seats, very likely to win, who come with a a very big reputation already. I'm thinking of people like Douglas Alexander and Heidi Alexander. I know they're not likely to go straight into cabinet, but I'd be very surprised that if they do get elected at the first opportunity, they don't uh, start making inroads into ministerial positions. Yeah, and I think the yeah, this sort of indicates, the, I think this reshuffle indicates that that could happen in the future, bring somebody back like Hilary Benn with that kind of level of experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but similarly, somebody like Liz Kendall, who you know, wasn't in wasn't a government minister, but actually was you know, quite high profile um, in the past. Yeah, I so think shout speaks. out to Carl before we move on to Catherine McKinnell, who also returned to the front bench as well. I think she was shadow attorney general in 2016 and has been out of the loop ever since on that. So it's nice to see her return as well. Yeah, no, but I mean, let's uh, while we're at it, a big big shout out to everybody that's returned. Yeah. <laughs> shadow ministerial. I'm sure, level. she listens. Fab, well, should we should we move on to the the story that seems to have dominated this week, the um, the rack 
scandal, um, which has, yeah, I think the education secretary has not been having the best week back from, from recess. Um, not least, you know, her small outburst. Um, I'd, be, I'd be interested to talk about the, her small outburst at some point once we've talked a little bit about the, the, scan, the scandal itself. Um, but yeah, it was supposed to be, I think it was supposed to be education week. You know, okay, I think Malcolm, me and you talked about the various weeks that the government doing were, were doing over the summer. They had small boats week, which lasted about, I think, less than a day in the end. <laughs> um, Thank God. Uh, I've forgotten which thought the other week was, but they didn't manage. I think they had health week and then they... Education they managed... week, I'm sure they had, well, this was this one, but, you know, it didn't yeah. work out too well. Yeah, no, exactly. So they've not managed to get more than a day into a week, into one of their weeks so far, <laughs> which doesn't bode well. If you, you know, if they are planning a general election in May, they might want to at least manage to get through one week before falling <laughs> before that. Um, so the scandal itself, I don't know if you want to sort of outline it, Malcolm, or I'm, I'm happy to. Or... Yeah, um, well, just as a sort of a, an interesting point, I was working with a, with, a, with a client and we actually tabled some questions on this um, early in the summer. Um, so when this first broke, I initially thought that I'd single-handedly brought the education system down, but it turns out there's more people interested in it, um, and it wasn't just me, so I'm pleased about it, but actually a really important issue, um, and I read, so I have the uh, the privilege of having already read the actual report that this relates to, and it's it's quite scary, um, and, I, and it was one of those things where I read it and thought, this seems like there should be more going on, and then obviously this is a pretty stark, you know, outcome in 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 the end. Um, so basically, what it is for people who who aren't aware, uh, rack is is actually autoclaved aerated concrete. It's a lightweight, bubbly form of concrete, and if you go online and search for it, you'll see. Um, and I actually remember seeing this in on school buildings. And and as an additional point of interest, probably to yourself, Carl, as well, and you own. There's now starting to be uh, a, a clamour for the, for extensive inspections into social housing flat roofs that also have these in. So there's potential for it goes far wider than just education. But at the minute, the main issue is education. And basically, the rack uh, buildings that were constructed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s are now at real risk of collapse due to deterioration in that concrete, and it's susceptible to sudden failure. And it has done. There's been roofs coming in or nearly coming in, just stopped by the metal girders that are the structural supports, and it is, is really weird. Um, this has been an issue that they've known about for a while. Um, they've been inspecting, um, and there's been, you know, they've been trying to determine the, pres the presence and condition of the rack used in buildings. Now, I did read something that said that the reason that, it, and I'm not sure if this is accurate or not, so I'm putting a caveat out there. I actually said it in a, in a meeting at work and then think that that might have actually been wrong but i did read it some on, on the inside housing website that said the way they make it the way they use rack now is safe but it was if it's in the 50s 60s and 70s but since then people have been saying it just across the board just get it out so there's issues about stuff that's been built in the 90s as well as obviously now 30 years old could also be deteriorating so i think there's a lot of uncertainty a lot of concern and at the minute, there's over 80 schools fully or partially closed in our area. Own, I believe there is a handful, a couple in Ferry Hill. Uh, there's P. Peter Lee and St. Leonard's in Durham, which is right next to County Hall, uh, is is, have, is is affected as well. So I know, Carl, there's a lot more down south. Uh, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, Essex may be affected by a lot. Um, and the southwest certainly in, is in a bad way. 
so yeah, that's that's the summary. Um, horrendously difficult for the government to sort. An absolute open goal um, for Labour. And the only thing that Rishi Sunak seemed able to say was that we hadn't mentioned it before. It doesn't really help him out whether been, this has been getting raised to over 100 PQs on it since 2019. Um, and that Rishi Sunak himself was when Chancellor cut the school budgets. And I remember Pat Glass, uh, who we've had on the show before, um, I remember working for her in 2010 when she made a big song and dance against Michael Gove, then Education Secretary, about the building schools for the future closure, which is clearly would have had a that would have dealt with this in some ways, if not always, by now. So there you go, Carl. That's something we start with. Yeah, and I think it the yeah exactly, and I think it goes to the there's an interesting political bit about it in the sense that it goes to the heart of some of the arguments around austerity that were had 2010 to 2015 in particular, obviously continued since then. Um, and the, you know, it keeps being brought up the rhetoric that Cameron and Osborne used at the time, which was about how uh, Labour hadn't fixed the roof when the sun was shining. Um, and they now, it now turns out they literally didn't fix any of the roofs. <laughs> Um, for, for their whole term and and you know their successes as well um and it's yeah but there there is a bit where i think the it's like you say a massive open goal for labor um there are specific things that can be re- linked directly to rishi sunak which makes, makes, makes it politically difficult for him um, and I'll, I'll come to Owen before we talk about it, and it might might be you have specific views on it specifically, Owen. But there seems to have been a bit of a concerted effort. Well, one, there's been a lot of disgruntlement in the Tory circles with the shadow education education circle. Sorry, the shadow. It's because we were talking about the uh, <laughs> reshuffle. The, edu- the actual, the current education secretary. Yeah, I don't think she'll make it to a shadow front bench role at this rate. The current education secretary for raising this issue at all because it it has so many implications across the public sector. Um, it's caused such a row, and there's a sort of a sense that some people within the Tory ranks, I think, see it as the government being overcautious on this issue, given it's been an issue for such a long time. Um, so, yeah, I think it'd be interesting to talk, talk a little bit about her and, and whether it's her fault and how, how she's going to get herself out of it and the kind of the politics of it for, for Rishi Sunak as well. But I don't know what you think, Owen, how you kind of saw it. And did, did you see the, the clip of her on the kind of hot mic accidentally? Yeah, yeah it, was, um, <laughs> it was good to see. It was quite funny. <laughs> it uh, kind of shows you how low the quality bar is in the... Uh, the Tory party for cabinet positions. But anyway, um, no, it's it's weird for Sunak because it must be quite hard to know that your record in government is finishing what Michael Gove started in terms of cutting school uh, refurbishments. But but yeah, sort of... And also listening to the BBC and how the, the media's changed in terms of referring to, to rack. It's no longer rack, it's crumbly concrete. And what better metaphor for the government? A crumbly cabinet... Uh, so it's it's been good to see. It's been quite obvious that it's been brushed under the carpet a lot by various uh, education secretaries. Um, and I think the most terrifying thing is that you can't tell if the, uh, at least from a visual inspection, that the interior steel bar that is meant to reinforce is rotten or not. So until it falls down and potentially kills somebody, it's lethal either way. Um, 
which I suppose is also quite a good metaphor for austerity and um, what's happened to the UK. So it's sort of, in a funny way, it links back to that article that Johan Harry wrote about Hamsworth and Fulham as the kind of archetypal Cameroon council uh, before the 2010 election. And if we're seeing the impact of that type of article and what austerity did there on a national scale, that's huge. And it's really hard for Sunat to get over and potentially even more difficult to replace the education secretary with somebody a bit more competent. But um, but yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bag for them, I think, at the, at the very best. You've now put an image in my head of just Rishi Sunak standing with a brush as the ceiling crumbles, <laughs> just lifting a rug, <laughs> pushing the concrete under God. the carpet. <laughs> well, it's like PMQ's call if you uh, watch the exchanges. And if you listen to Rishi Sunak without really following what was going on, everything's all right. There's not a problem here. It's all it's all just political opportunism, that old chestnut. And it's like, well, it's not really. You know, this is a this is a very very serious issue. You've got children sitting under under very very faulty uh, hardware apparatus. One of the things I heard as well <clears throat> is this is actually a really hard thing to sort out. So that in terms of it getting solved here, because there's obviously the politics and we all talk about it and enjoy it. And ultimately this needs to be sorted out because one of the concerns a lot of parents have is that that what they don't want is a return to sort of COVID conditions of education where it's all done from home. Um, So there's still that scar tissue in a lot of parents' memories about, um, you know, they don't want to return to to that type of, of arrangement. But also this needs to be uh, sorted. And if you have them in school, you're looking at like porter cabins. Now I'm old enough to remember when I was, I was at comprehensive school from 92 to 97, which is the John Major years. And obviously it was at the end of the sort of post stature, you know, time. My, my entire school time was normalized by having four porter cabins in, in my school grounds. They're, they're, they're now gone. What they were was a was a condition of, of that era, of, of schools not you know we needed them because we didn't have enough classrooms. That it's just as a kid you just accept what's in front of you. I went yeah. to visit the school when I worked for the MP and I was like, oh the port cabins have gone, and he was almost like, oh yeah, then it was a bit awkward. Didn't want to be reminded of them, but that was my entire experience. So we we don't want that to happen again where kids are going to have to be in port cabins. This could take years to sort, um, and it's going to take a lot of money. Um, so I think for me, uh, obviously, once the politics are sorted, I'd like everyone to get on with actually working on how they're going to actually fix it um, because it's a huge problem. The issue about checking social uh, public buildings, then you get the added issue of asbestos, which is a massive issue um, because if it if it drops, obviously dropping is bad enough, and as you say, the collapse is an issue. If it then exposes asbestos, that's an additional nightmare. Um, so yeah, it's just all around bad. Uh, and the only thing Rishi Sunak seemed to be able to say was everything's fine and the only thing Gillian Keegan seemed to say was why isn't everyone telling us that we're doing a good job with the expletives included which is odd given I mean the situation what's the last thing you expect to hear oh do we never get praise for this no no you don't (laughs) yeah I mean I think well one I'd sort of echo your point about port cabins I I did all my RE lessons in port cabin Um, God bless them (laughs) (laughs) um yeah there's lots of things i I don't want to i don't want to go back to that time for a lot of reasons but um 
But yeah, I think there's probably yeah, there's two bits to it, isn't there? There's one is the it it's an open goal for Labour, but it's also a problem for Labour because Labour are likely to be the government after the next election. Absolutely right. Uh, there's going to have to be a fair bit of investment to to fix that problem and quite probably quite quickly, and it's not an easy problem to solve. At the same time as this might now also be a problem for loads of other public buildings. It might be a problem for social housing. There's already a load of problems in in housing with the cladding scandal, which hasn't been resolved. So there's there's quite a lot of things that could suck up quite a lot of money before we even talk about net zero and all the things that you know that that Labour wants to be doing. There's just solving those problems is going to be tough. I think the bit about uh, Gillian Keegan is interesting just because how she's been treated and it seemed like so there was a bit of a uh, there was a few people on LinkedIn having a bit of a conspiratorial well uh, an open but conspiratorial discussion about how whether or not she did it on purpose Um, because it's quite a classic sort of political trick to put even like a West Wing episode about it where the president sort of on purpose accidentally says something into the into a mic um, because of how she did it she did it quite quickly after the recording and between that and another recording um, and it was basically tried for her trying to say this isn't my fault this this is people having not having not done their jobs because um, the, there was quite early on a fair bit of briefing against her there has been through the week quite a bit of briefing against her and I just thought it was a, it's kind of a, yeah it might be trying to give her way too much credit um, <laughs> given everything else that's going on but to be fair to her and I won't be in anything else I say today I'm going to borrow us both um, from it... saying that I think I'll say it too often as well <laughs> carry on, sorry <laughs> but it, 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 this isn't her fault She's, yeah, this is a long standing issue it's an issue that goes back to the 90s yeah, Michael Gove is is the first culprit really of, of, of pulling back on the investment that was needed to, to solve this problem the Labour government tried to do it over a long period of time, it took a long period of time to get to even where where they did um, but yeah it, it, she's the one that's kind of it, it's landed on her um, to sort of pass the parcel as the music stopped and it's <laughs> it's landed on her and she's going to get probably canned at some point for it um, when actually it's a long-standing issue so that but you know I just thought it was interesting to to understand whether actually she was trying to sort of fight back a little bit there um, and it wasn't necessarily just a cock up I think as well there's a wider piece of work to do at some point as well as appreciating that there's people who've identified this that's came to light is there any other materials out there uh, that we need to be aware of and start to think about how we're going to mitigate because this has clearly been you know even i mean again i'm i'm no surveyor i'm no expert in materials or building or anything like that but when you see people say oh it's a lightweight bubbly form of concrete I don't really want a bubbly form of concrete keeping something up. It's kind of like, <laughs> you know, that this must have been a budget form of something way back in the day. I mean, again, we're talking 50s, 60s, 70s, there's the accountability well, was, was, But Sorry, Carl. I was just going to say, it was, it was on purpose done as a temporary measure. The, a lot right. of these buildings were built to not last. And the idea was it was a kind of post, post-war, mm. we need to chuck up a load of buildings, we need this stuff now. 
hopefully in the future, in 30 or 40 years, we'll have, you know, ha 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 ha, we'll have more money and time and energy. And we can, we can, we've got, you know, 40 years to plan what we're going to do. And and that just, it never happened. And it was dragged on and on and on. Um, Now, I think there are buildings where that's not, you know, it's not the case, but a lot of the kind of the school buildings when they were built, it was known that they you know, they weren't designed to last a long time, and they've been their life their sort of usable life has been dragged well beyond what it was supposed to be. So it, it also exposed another thing for Sunak, <clears throat> um, in that when he tries to go beyond the lines he's got on, on the sort of cassette that he puts into his head, kind of thing, he sort of loses the plot completely. Um, I mean, in 2017, in, in the, the general election campaign, you could see him practicing at the start of every hostings, and the flap would come up and the tape would go in. Uh, and uh, he lost two hostings to us because he just used Strong and Stable and Theresa May as a stock answer to every question. Oh, okay. The more that he's trying to push back, you can see he's not comfortable, which is then bringing in more criticism. And as he's, he's criticised, he gets all red faced and stumpy. Uh, so it's. It's difficult from every angle for him, I think, and it's probably exposed that, well, that he's not particularly good PM, but that's a rather personal point of view, having had him as my, my MP. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it is very hard. Um, you don't really want to have a building made from aero, really. It's sort of <laughs> and it's mint and covered in chocolate. It sort of uh, doesn't really bear thinking about, but, but it, it is hard and it'll be very hard for us. Uh, after the election, but it's probably a good time for it to come up uh, and cover up and, everything else. Yeah, uh, rank. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather I'd rather us be sort of it than them, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a big problem, um, and it's I think it's going to be a very costly solution. Yeah, I suspect it hasn't. As much as it's been a good week for for Labour, it's probably not been the best week for Rachel Reeves and her team. I'm sure that's going to cause some some people quite a lot of work between now and the next election. An interesting um, point, Carl. Before we finish and move on to this, a side point is that has this had any impact on the polls? Because I haven't I haven't even had a chance to check. I might just while we're while we're doing that, I might just have a quick look. Because do you think like problems like this? Do you feel like these are already baked in? Uh, to people just expect this now. It doesn't really have a. Is it expect us to have a negative impact on the polls for them? But maybe this just this is now just all baked in. It's just the latest in a. Uh, something that solidifies the existing position rather than adds to the adds to it. I'm just going to have a quick uh, a quick look. So feel free well, to move on, Carl. I will come back in. Yeah, I was going to say while while you do that, I would say that I I haven't seen any specific post rack polls, but the polls are still bad for the Tories. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's well, that's fairly um, fairly safe to say. Uh, the latest poll I saw actually was a Scotland poll that put us neck and neck with the SNP, which is an interesting one. But we can touch on that maybe later on. Uh, the next thing we want to talk about is uh, Birmingham City Council uh, serving a Section 114 notice, which was picked up in PMQs, actually. Rishi Sunak decided it was a good day to use that as an attack against the Labour Party. Um, it's effectively declared the council bankrupt with uh, £756 million pounds of debt. Um, it's the largest local authority in Europe, which I think I did know that, but had forgotten. It's controlled by Labour. Um 65 Labour councillors, 22 Conservative, 12 Liberal Democrats and two Greens. Um, and it's paid out £1.1 billion in equal pay claims uh, following um, 
August when they invited 10, their 10,600 employees to apply to, to quit under its mutually agreed resignation scheme, which is an ac- acronym to Mars, which is interesting. <laughs> would, would you like to go to Mars? Yeah, um, at the end, uh, the end of August to help cut costs. Um, Conservatives have cited other Labour councillors who failed and say council's course spending power was raised by 9.2% this year, um, which I'm sure we can all get our teeth into that line. Um, do you want to go first on this one, Owen? <laughs> I suppose so. I mean, it's, it's dreadful to see, first and foremost, not least for the employees, but also for the people that rely on the services. But, I mean, the first council to go bankrupt under uh, Section 114 was Northamptonshire, and that was Tory-controlled. And again, it's a go of innovation to allow councils to go bankrupt, uh, to then centralise all of the uh, stuff in Westminster. But it's, you kind of imagine, I mean, Greg Hans has already come out with the um, that little note that uh, uh, Ian Singh left. single day he does that. Yeah, um, <laughs> saying, uh, well, Labour bankrupts all councils. And you kind of think, well, Northamptonshire was the prime experiment, and they split the county in half. And it's now majority Tory on, I think, the uh, south of Hampshire, and then the north includes Corby, so it's got more of a Labour inflection. But it's if they've practised it in places where people can ignore, they're going to bash us with it constantly. Which is, I mean, they are desperate, so they're looking for things to do. But again, it, like with RAC, it comes back to the problem of it's a Tory policy and austerity combining, plus... Uh, council budgets being cut consistently since 2010 that has resulted in this, and that's a Tory decision. Nobody else's. It wasn't up to the councillors who, who had to do that. Um, and it is the government's fault, not least Greg Hans, who's been in pretty much every front bench position you can think of. I mean, it's a bit like sort of musical chairs for him, but um, it's, yeah, it's, it's hard, very hard, because I, I like Birmingham a lot, and it deserves quality representation, but if all of the powers that are going to be given to Gove as the final arbiter uh, are used, it's going to be left like a husk. Delivering only statutory services that really, as a minimum, I wouldn't want to be a a council anywhere just deciding on where money goes and nothing else. Because that is my job as a councillor. So lots of different issues, but it, it is just Tory policy coming home to roost. And about time too. Yeah, and I think, think that I think the the comment I'll make on that, I agree with all that, Owen. I definitely agree that you know very very poor 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 politics by the Tory people, the usual suspects you would say, who've come out and said this is what you get from the Labour Council. Um, very very disappointing comments, and they know that's a lot of nonsense. This issue is too important to sort of play that dishonest political game. I would say. Because it's not a credible position; it's just it's just pure populism. Um, I think, like any council, and I think we've all experienced this at different levels. You know, I never went into politics to work out what we we're going to cut. But when I was in a councillor from twenty seventeen to twenty twenty one in Durham, that's all we ever did. Now, obviously, it wasn't. We I would generally just ratify decisions taken by the cabinet members, but that was their job to work out what we saved and to work out creative ways of trying to avoid frontline cuts but ultimately we had 300 million taken off in 10 years and that has to have an impact the fact that we if you think about 
like you said, only the impact of, of, of employees and the biggest expense any council has is, is employees, really. Obviously, equipment, etc., but but mostly people. And they were all invited to quit under a, this Mars scheme. Terrible. You know, they would have all had to deal with that letter. And if you receive that letter, well, what do you think? Not, oh, I might have to quit. Well, when's this going to become compulsory? If nobody comes forward, they're going to go, right, well, if none of you are going to voluntarily go, we're just going to say, right, this is the number and see what happens. <clears throat> very, very uncertain. Councils are big, big employers in their communities. Um, and we were sort of reduced at this point to the, the, the blame game. Um, but yeah, a massive council. It happens to be labour controlled. Like Owen said, it it's it's they have to deal with what they're given, and they're not given enough, and they're down nearly a bill. It's it's not quite as bad as where someone scammed them out of all the money. I think this is just purely spending. Um, but yeah, terrible. What, what's your views, Carl, as a former county councillor yourself in in the London area? Uh, well, just uh, not not a county councillor, a London borough right, councillor. Sorry, apologies. I mean, sorry, London. <laughs> Um, yeah, don't don't tell Sadiq Khan. Um, he, I, I think. Well, one, I think this is a kind of it's an interesting one because actually the issue that's caused this is quite a complex one. It's quite um, it's quite a it's quite a precise error, um, but a massive one um, in terms of ha- in terms of what's happened. Um, the there's an the yeah the kind of context that you both outlined is exactly right um in terms of where local government is uh, it's not in a good place across the country there's um i think sky news had a i think there's seven other councils that have gone under in this way uh of various political flavors um but i think it's yeah slightly complicated by um the the kind of the issue that's kicked it off which is about equal pay um i think it originally started with um a pay deal for refuse workers uh, which was seen as um largely benefiting men and women because of the how jobs were uh you know the kind of people in in different kind of jobs in, in within the council um and then something was done to try and resolve it and that seems to have been what's caused this kind of larger issue which has now come out in the courts and created a massive bill um so it's sort of it the financial context that council's in is really important um and is causing real problems and is putting councils in really weird positions um because they're in you know often struggling with cuts they're trying to find ways out of it you know, in Merton, I think I've said before, we're really lucky in that we um, used some of the powers in the Localism Act and made an investment in a company that's recently been sold for £120 million. But, so but we, we're one of the winners in that. But when you make those kind of investments, you can, you know, on the other end, cause some real financial problems. But the, this, the Birmingham issue seems to be, you know, it's a big bill that's come from a, a cock-up um, and quite a big one. Uh, that probably shouldn't have happened. So it's it's it's. Uh, I think this one sort of complicates the story a little bit. Yeah, I was just going to come in on that call because it was it's an important point you make that when I was obviously writing the show notes, I was putting the, the key points in. 
and I noticed that the the sort of part of maybe part of the blame, if you like, for this was was about equal pay, and I was I didn't like any inference that that wasn't a problem because obviously that's not a problem. That's that's something that should be done, but it does clearly have an impact on on finances, and it's as well as base budget pressures, inflation, all these different things have an impact. But I just I, I wasn't I couldn't put my finger right on where it had come from, but. And, and I can't even say that this is a Tory tactic on how to frame this either. Um, but I would be very, very saddened and angry if, if they started to say that having to pay equal pay um, is, is, a, is a problem for, for council. It's, it's not a problem. It's something that should be done. Um, and, and I think that it could be a, the consequence of that could lead to problems. But that in and of itself shouldn't be uh, avoided. I know it can't be legally. But there just seemed to me to be like a little nudge in the direction of saying that that was, you know, if we didn't have to do that, we'd be all right. And that didn't come from Labour. Um, I can't, again, lay my hat on saying it definitely came from Conservatives. But that the way that it was reported did seem to nod in that direction, which I didn't like. Yeah. Um, Owen on my screen is frozen. I don't know if you're still there, Owen. And He's you can, still moving we, here. Okay. It's just, it's just me then. Um, so... Is there anything else you want to add, Owen, on the... Um, I don't think so. I mean, apart from Greg Hans constantly kind of pushing that little note, you kind of think he's gone from having no MPs left at one point, potentially, to having no councils left, leave alone councillors. So what we're going to end the uh, campaign with? Um, <laughs> we have no cabinet members, maybe. But um, but no, it's, it's a shame that it is being framed in that equal pay uh, framework because equal pay is the right thing to do. But it needs paying for in the end. So, if it has a cock up, then fine. But the ultimate, uh, well, the buck stops with the Tory policy in the end. And sorry, Michael. No, you you mentioned that that note, Owen. You might see it a bit more often because Liam Burns standing as the Business and Trade Committee, uh, one of the candidates apparently against Angela Eagle, potentially Andy Macdonald as well. Mm. Um, but I don't suppose he'll have much of a chance. Um, but I think, yeah, so Greg Hans presumably won't be sporting Liam Byrne, so I have a feeling that that little note will be getting a gift a little bit more regularly as he campaigns for presumably Angela Eagle. Has to be a Labour chair, um, and apparently mm. he's interested, so we'll see how that goes. Um, so if people are, are want to wind up Greg Hans, they could put him in as chair, and I'm sure that would send him into, into orbit quite literally. So it's an interesting point because we we didn't mention Darren Jones when we were talking about the reshuffle, but he is a he was one of the promotions. It was that was another one that was kind of touted for a long time, yeah, and is seen as quite a kind of rising star, I think, within the party. Interesting that he's gone from chair of the Business and Trades of that committee, where he had succeeded Rachel Reeves, to now being her number two um, in the Shadow Treasury team. So, I've I've met Darren really intelligent guy um, and someone who's been touted for a long time as a as a, as a serious contender for, for promotion. It wasn't a surprise at all. Um, a very, very competent politician. He's had some good moments. He's used it well in terms of, you know, hammering the Royal Mail people. He's, he's managed to clip. He's got some good clips of him really going hard into the... Uh, so it reminded me of um, when Margaret Hodge was the, the public audit committee or the public accounts committee I forget the exact name Carl you'd be able to help me there but she, she used to get people in give them a good grilling and get some good coverage and I think he, he used to do a similar style but yeah very very good politician um, and, and someone I think will continue to, to, to rise to be honest 
Definitely. Well, should we move on and talk about the excitement of the uh, of the three by elections we've got coming up? Yes. Um, I I know you're I know you're dying to talk about Nadine Dory, so I feel like I should throw. throw well, I, I, I do want to say to start with that I'm a little bit sad, Carl. Because it's very, very soon we're not going to be able to talk about Nadine Doris anymore. And we've, we've got so long, so many podcasts out of this. Um, and she did actually go. And it was like, I was quite surprised because I generally thought that, like, if you said, like, when was she going to leave? I kind of got to the point where I didn't think she was going to leave. And then she did. So, yeah, majority of 24,664. And I believe that Labour or something like one to say very very likely to 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 win it or um people are expecting them to win but interestingly colin obviously you're the expert on on this uh would there be a lived impact uh because both of them will be sniffing around fancying the chances uh but i think i'll if you don't mind carl we'll let owen i guess two things to ask you Owen. you know because you haven't obviously commented on Nadine Dorries in terms of how the, how this has all played out. Would be interested to hear your view on how it's all developed, like the, the absurdity of, of, you know, when she said she was going, she didn't get in the Lords and then did, didn't evidently get in the Lords and then said she was going to go and then hung on and had this crusade against this personal that nobody would have cared about except her. And fair play, she will care about it a lot, but no one else does. Um, and how you also see the, the by-election going. Um, so I'll hand over to you. I'll start with the second one first. I mean, I have a personal preference, obviously, that, that we'll win. Um, and looking at how the parties change in terms of campaigning in by-elections, I think we're on well, a good chance of overtaking the majority. If we can do it in Selby, we can do it anywhere, even yeah. Bedfordshire. In terms of Nadine Dorries, I mean, you do have to wonder whether or not there's been a publishing deadline that she's missed. And they pushed it back and pushed it back and pushed it back until eventually getting so annoyed they said it's final and she had to meet it. Very minor books coming out. Um, in lots of ways, it probably shows you quite how desperate she is to stay in the parliamentary estate. It does beg the question whether or not she'll have her pass rescinded when she when the by-election's done, like Boris Johnson. And also, it's, it's left me half wondering if she's um, dog-sitting Dylan because uh, uh, obviously <laughs> probably isn't allowed into the new house in um, Oxfordshire, so maybe she's got a new job. I don't know. It's sort of, but it's lots of different things. Um, but I would, I, I, my preference is that we'd we'd win. Um, in terms of a lived impact, there might be one. There might not be one. It would make sense. Tactical voting has worked elsewhere. Uh, but like I say, preferences overall majority for us in in the seat. I mean, I would always want us to win, just for the record. But. Uh, <laughs> I think it's whether or not. Um, I suppose the danger is that we we split each other's votes. Given that the there will be that protest vote, there will be that tactical element of people. I think the the general consensus is that the mid Bedfordshire constituents are very unhappy with how Lady Doris handled her, her departure. She could have just gone quickly. Um, I mean, I'm sure nobody would necessarily begrudge her saying, "Look, I'm just not happy, and I want to go. Fine, go, and we'll get somebody else." But the way that it's played out has been particularly bad. Um, Carl, here we are. She's resigned. What's your views? Well, I was going to—I'm sure all of our listeners know this—but I was just going to point out that um, Dylan is Boris Johnson's dog. Just for anyone that didn't, <laughs> didn't know. Well, actually, know. I didn't know that, so I figured it. I guessed, <laughs> but thank you for that. I wasn't sure. <laughs> Sorry. Um, 
Yeah, no, I so we've talked about this uh, quite a few times before. I did a bit from the kind of Lib Dem perspective quite a few months back, whenever whenever it was that she first started. 2012? Talking about it, yeah, whenever it was. <laughs> um, so uh, as far as I can tell, I don't think there'll be a pact, and I think it's right that there isn't a pact, um, because I think when this first was called, the Lib Dems basically tried to bagsy it because it was going to be called at the same time as the Uxbridge and... Which is a formal uh, political thing. Let's bag that, you know. <laughs> exactly. Is that what you do, Carl? Is that how, is that how these by-elections work? You just bags it. I think that's, I think that's, I think that's, that's how they, they try and do it. But they, 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 <laughs> tried to, they tried to put themselves as the main challenger. Yeah. And there was a quite a kind of few articles basically saying the Lib Dems will go for that one and Labour will go for Selby and Uxbridge, which I don't think really had any firm basis. And I'm pretty sure I said at the time that we should have a good crack at um, the Dory seat because we were second and we shouldn't be leaving seats to the Lib Dems. I think there's a, there is, you know, we're doing incredibly well in polls nationally, we're doing incredibly well in polls in, in Scotland. I think there is a kind of marginal danger that we're seen to leave certain seats in the South to the Lib Dems. Um, and that it feeds the kind of narrative that actually we might have to rely on them for a coalition and things like that, mm. uh, which I just don't think, uh, well, I just don't think we should uh, play around with. And I don't think at this stage in a parliament we should be thinking about. So I think it's really good news that, you know, I've had millions of emails from the party and lots of, lots of affiliated organisations saying we're going hard in mid bedfordshire I think that's uh, really good news. The polls look good for the seat. I think the last betting I saw, which wasn't that long ago, might have been just when she she actually finally resigned, was that the the Lib Dems were still um, sort of doing best in the betting odds at that point. But I'm hoping that has changed or will change quite soon. Um, but yeah, I think it's you know I think the residents of Mid Bedfordshire are going to be really really annoyed of having received a lot of leaflets from the Lib Dems, Labour, and the Tories, and had a lot of had their door knock on probably ten times a day. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think yeah we need to go hard on it. it who knows whether they will win it? I think we have you know, we have we should have the best chance of doing it. Um, but it's, I think it's kind of an important marker to say we're gonna, we're gonna go for this, and if we win it, I think it's, a, it will send a really good signal in a way that actually, you know, Oxbridge was tough that we lost it, but if we'd have won it, it probably you know, this is a better one to win than Oxbridge if we win it. I've just had a look, Carl, on the on the live by-election odds, which is clearly only relevant to us at this very second because it'll be out of date by the time people hear it. Uh, but as things stand, uh, the Lib Dems are about uh, six to five, so near, kind of near even money as favourites. Labour around about two to one, and the Tories at nine to four, which is just slightly worse than two to one. So what I would take from that is that Lib Dems are on the drift, Labour's price is coming in, so it's certainly possible Labour could win. Libs are the favourites, but it's a bit of a three-way marginal, so very much worth fighting for and it's going to be a really interesting result definitely um and yeah i'd encourage any listener to get down there and knock on doors uh, for labor i'm just grieving that we you know what are we going to talk about this is going to be so much harder to fill time given that you know i, I think i'll have to talk about nadine doris's book nadine watch we've got we've got <laughs> mps behaving badly Owen, where we cover you know people we always have stuff for that um, and, and then the new, the new boy. Team, yeah. Speaking of that, Carl, I'll pass back. 
I was going to say, uh, next one we're going to talk about is uh, Margaret Ferrier, Brother Glenn and Hamilton West, removed by her constituents in a recall petition. Um, did chose not to resign. She could have she could have chosen to resign earlier, but she waited to be removed. Uh, the majority's uh, 5,230 uh, from 2019 over the Labour Party. It's kind of seen. I, I think that that Labour are sort of favourites to win with the bookies, but I think it's sort of been seen ever since it was a possibility that uh, one that the recall petition would probably happen and be successful and two, that Labour would win it. So it's one where we have to win it and we should probably win it quite handily. Labour are 1-20 you know, and SNP are 8-1 to one and the Tories and the Libs are 100-1. to one. And that odds were correct as about three days ago, but that gives you a flavour. Labour, massive favourites. Um, but, I mean, what do you think? Do you think we're going to storm it? It's going to be a tough one. I mean, the, the polls are looking good for us in Scotland at the moment. But do you think there's anything that might complicate it? when we get there um well i mean i did my phd at glasgow university so i'm kind of a bit biased towards wanting labor to win scotland so um it's an interesting seat uh we should win it but i think the snp are so desperate that they will do literally anything to prove that the new leader's got some kind of winning streak um having said that the complications for them are enormous, not least their uh, Lord Provost of Glasgow having more shoes and a Meldemar cost on the uh, on the taxpayers bill um, and that kind of thing. But it's having seen what they did to the city of Glasgow and to Rutherglen in that way, they have a lot of issues to overcome before they even get to that positive part of the conversation on the doorstep. So it could be potholes, it could be cross voted it could be council house uh, windows that kind of thing and even before they get to that bit oh I'm from the SNP they know they've got issues to overcome uh, and I think realistically we've got a great candidate it's been a brilliant campaign um, and the support is some of the biggest I've seen in, in the photos um, MSPs have been there constantly uh, since there was a, even a, a whiff of anything happening um, and the campaign team's diverse, it's young, it's exciting, and they want to win, and that is great. It's the first time I've seen it probably since 2018, really, 2019, really, um, in Scotland. And it's it's ours to lose, I think. It's an interesting one, because there does seem, you know, you know I'm, I'm talking about this from southwest London, so um, I appreciate my view of it might be um, somewhat coloured and distant, but... Um, it does seem to have been a kind of genuine resurgence in campaigning activity in Scotland, um, as well. Yeah, you know, kind of mirroring the polls to some degree, which I think it does feel like. Yeah, you know, particularly in a by-election, that's the kind of thing that that makes a difference. But you know, being able to get loads of people, enthusiastic people, out bothering people in their houses mm-hmm. um, is 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 important. What do you think, Malcolm? A few points, I think. Um, the, another challenge, you know, a few challenges I mentioned there about, you know, ground issues. The the big the big big problem is the nature the the sort of the route to which Margaret Ferry has left. That's obviously raised anger. Um, people will be looking to express their unhappiness, even even if they can discount everything Owen said and say actually we don't agree with that. That in itself can will will lose them some votes. 
Um, there's obviously the SNP uh, fraud stuff which is ongoing that just, again, any time that a party faces stuff like that, the camper vans, all that sort of thing, you know, whatever the truth is behind that, you just don't want those headlines and it, that always costs you votes as well. Um, they've got a new leader and for a variety of reasons, not all of which are pleasant, there will be issues around that as well, the new start, um, whether or not Nicola Sturgeon um, was seen as good, some people supported her strongly. Um, and I think the point that I very much agree with is a buoyant Labour Party. I recall when the, uh, just after 2015, when the SNP sort of swept everything and absolutely, you know, just changed everything. Um, I recall the, the General Secretary of Scotland's Labour Party job came up and they couldn't they couldn't get anyone. You know, nobody wanted to know. And I remember it was like 100k or something like that. And people were going, stick a zero on and we'll talk, you know, because... It just wasn't something that people really wanted to touch. But I imagine now there'll be far more people interested to jump on the bandwagon and get involved and run that campaign. So Owen's absolutely right. There's a buoyant Labour Party. that It feels exciting. And people do get taken along by that. You know, that's what won the SNP in 2015. People got behind something and it felt new, felt exciting. And if you can build that momentum, no pun intended, you always have to say that with momentum these days. Um, but if you can build that genuine um, surge of energy, uh, then you've got a chance. So I think in terms of when you put all of that together, Labour should 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 walk home uh, with it. However, for those Scottish nationalists who are clinging desperately on, they may hold their nose and, and just stand firm. It, again, it's a result that will be very, very, very telling, whatever it is. Um, the most interesting result for me would be if they somehow held it and what that would mean for the rest of the, you know, is it because one thing the SNP had to do and have managed to do for, for eight years is retain independence as the the only thing that matters. You know, vote for us and show that you want independence. That appears to have moved. Now, if it has moved, that's always going to be bad news for them. Um, when it's when you go back to issues, and again we've we've talked about it, Carl. If you're looking at it practically on how do you get to independence. The, the chances are if you have all SNP MPs, it's very hard for Labour to win an, an election. So you end up with a Tory government and you end up not getting it because they've said, nope, not doing it. In theory, even though Labour said they also hold the same position, they know what they're getting with the Tories, so they have to try something else. And there's a chance that if it's home, they could be, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's, there's scenarios that aren't available to them if the Tories don't win. Or if the Tories win, they know what they're getting. So, yeah. So I think the, the public are starting to move from just that simple statement vote for the SNP. Um, but I'll be looking at that result very closely and I think it'll be very, very telling. And certainly some of Kia Starmer will be looking at it as well. Yeah. I mean, there is a, one other thing as well. I was having a chat with somebody from uh, our chief whip's office in Holyrood and they said that when, as soon as uh, Sturgeon left, they were so used to having like this bunker mentality in terms of there was no messaging coming out unless it was passed by the leader. As soon as she left, all of the SNP groups started arguing in public. Mm. And that's filtering out as well. Um, and also the Tories are doing the same thing. So like I say, it is ours to lose if we've got that backdrop alongside the more sort of national UK-wide political backdrop. So it's going to be really interesting, but I hope we win. I hope we win. One more point I'll make, Carl, is that and it's, it's on a similar line to what Owens just said there. You get a lot of candidates now who know the writing's on the wall and that gets people touchy and it gets people nervous and it gets people saying stuff. When everyone was just going to win and there were going to be MPs and MSPs for, forevermore on these rock-solid majorities that they just couldn't believe their luck, it was dead easy to stay on message. 
harder now when a lot of them, a few of them are starting to confirm they're not going to stand again and all of the usual, you know, uncertainty that that brings politically as well as in their own lives. And, you know, there's one good way of getting someone to say, you know, if they suddenly feel desperate, things happen. Yeah, and there's a uh, there's potential for a bit of a spiral where you know you get lower quality candidates or just candidates that aren't as motivated when they're selected, which sort of feeds the kind of yeah the downward spiral. Well, we we, um, we did talk about Mary Black's confirming she wasn't standing a while back, um, and I think that is a telling one because she's such a big name and there could be many more follow suit. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how many of them yeah hold or. Stick twist or mm-hmm. yeah, go down on anyway. the sword like I did. That's the only way, Carl. <laughs> Don't walk away. Don't chicken run it. <laughs> Stand there and be beaten. I took it as a I took it as a matter of honour. I knew I was going down, and I stood there and took it because I thought you're not going to scare me away or run away. Um, I'm not a big fan of this chicken run thing. I think I would say to anybody, it's better to go down on your sword. <laughs> well, we talked about this before because obviously I I stood down, but um, that's not for, that's not in any way criticism of you, Carl. That was just <laughs> that was just me. I just feel like you know. Sorry, we can we can have that row another time, Malcolm. <laughs> Let's dedicate all next week to it. <laughs> Uh, because we've got to talk about Chris Pincher, who's been, you know, a pivotal figure in the history of the the, the recent history of the Conservative Party, brought down Boris Johnson with his uh, scandal, finally <laughs> leaving Parliament. Um, and there's a whole load of sort of extra politics around it because they had already um, selected his replacement as well. Um, so he's lost his appeal against an eight-week suspension. Confirmed today that he'll resign as MP, um, which will he's sort of doing a sort of Boris Johnson avoiding the suspension and the recall petition potential recall, recall petition. Um, it's a very very Tory seat. Um, I guess the first question is, are we going to win it? Election odds: Labour one to five, Tories three to one, Lib Dems twenty-five to one, the rest hundred to one. So, given that it's been a Tory seat since 1885, and that's as early as it existed, so it's blue forever, um, to even be in the mix for this is insane. And, if, mm-hmm. and again, there's always that thing, do by-election results translate to, to national uh, general elections? Probably not. But if this does go red, um, take your pick on how many seats that would look like for us at a general election. Um, yeah, I mean, I've only ever known Tamworth as a service station. Um, <laughs> like Tory <laughs> service station. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been. That's going to surprise you even more. <laughs> so, yeah, I've, I've not been. Uh, Owen, have, have you... Do you know Tamworth as an area? Have you... Uh, I've lived in the East Midlands and that kind of area quite a lot. Uh, it's... It's a bit like... If we had gained Uxbridge, that would have been massive. But if we gained Tamworth in what is quite a good year, then with it, I would say with a majority of over 1,500, that would be amazing. It would just be a line in the sand to say, enough. We want change. Yeah. Let's get everything sorted and done. Uh, it's got nineteen thousand six hundred and thirty-four in twenty nineteen, Owen. So that mm-hmm. it's a it's a smaller majority than than Nadine Doris's mid Bedfordshire seat, mm-hmm. but arguably more sort of purely entrenched. True. Uh, I mean, thinking on Selby, I mean, the majority there was 
enormous really to overturn uh, and we do hold Selby Town Council as a majority Labour Town Council and from memory so this could be incorrect there are no majority town or parish councils in Tamworth for the Labour Party yeah. having said that uh, Shibana Mahmood has been very good at saying and she is right that the route to a majority is through rural Britain and if we do win it even with a majority of one, that proves that rule. And that's quite exciting, well, a, a position to be in, but B, if people do turn over that majority on their own terms, then that proves that we're doing something right. And that's really important ahead of next May or October slash May, probably. Yeah, I agree. I think as well, I mean, again, the circumstances to which the MP is leaving, um, it's been, I mean, I don't think you could ever say that leaving because of sexual misconduct um, is being clean. It's being cleaner than some insofar as it's the process has gone through and then he's just left. There hasn't, he's obviously appealed it, which you know, he's got a right to do. Um, and he was going to get that eight-week suspension, which would have led to the recall petition, which very likely would have led to that 10% threshold being reached and then him having to go anyway. Uh, and he's, he's chosen to, 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 to walk away, which I think is the, the, the right thing to do. Um, it, it just lets people you know it'll move on very very another very interesting one and it could well be on the same day as the as the other one i'm not sure how quickly the writ that i imagine people are moving quite quickly but yeah these three another three um paint a story and um it's going to be very interesting in terms of of uh of how this plays out so i mean i always say it but i I always look at these by-election results really carefully and and it's always fascinating as to how 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 they're spun in terms of every party comes out saying what a great result it was even if they didn't win i mean the toys will be saying you know there was the absurdity of of sort of coming out and saying that what they would do here if they held this seat with a 19,000 majority of how well they've done well no you've just kept a seat that's never been anyone else well yeah i mean and it's an interesting one because the person that had been selected to succeed chris pincher at the next election is eddie hughes who uh, was it was his seats changing and effectively disappearing in his current form um so he he was going to be the candidate but he's um decided not to stand in the by-election or, I mean, I think probably, you know, it's a sensible decision given he's a sitting MP and he has current constituents that he needs to look at. also by-elections are more but, volatile as well, aren't they, Carl? So you would you would get a different result for the general. Even if they didn't win it back, um, you would you would probably get a, a more sort of national result than what there's going to be here. So I can understand that. Um, well, and also he'd, he'd have to cause another by-election. So he'd, indeed, he'd have, yeah. he'd potentially be, you know, he, he would... Uh, yeah, he. Uh, I was trying to think of a different way of saying it, but he would massively piss on his own chips mm-hmm. <laughs> in yep. the sense that, you know, he he if he if he moved to Tamworth, lost there, which is entirely possible in a by-election, mm. caused another by-election, which was again lost. He's not really got a route back at that point because not nobody's going to be looking very favourably on him as a candidate to to come back in the next election. Would he? I presume now that 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 puts him in a difficult position because he now, having sorted out what would have perceptively been a safe-ish seat for the next election in normal circumstances, uh, having have no seat to stand in at present given the the boundary changes, he's now back to square one. Um, yeah, well, I think he's he said that he doesn't know what he's going to do. He's he's focusing on the Tories winning Tamworth, um, but I mean it's a problem for him if 
if they win it, if the Conservatives win it, because then there's another candidate there and he'll have to find himself another seat. If they don't win it, it's, he has to then decide whether he wants to give it a go against a sitting Labour MP. Um, but presumably he must have known that when he went, you know, it wasn't that long ago that he was selected for the seat. I think we, you know, we knew the reason that he went for it is because we, you know, Chris Pincher had lost the whip. So he must have, it's, it's, it's sort of surprising that he's in this position because he must have known this was probably likely to happen. Again, we're probably giving them too much faith, Carl. We, we, we always seem to think that they, they, they see these things. It's obvious, but he probably didn't, he probably never thought about it. He just looked at it and thought, 90,000 majority? I'll have some of that. Um, but it hasn't quite worked out that way, sadly, for him. I mean, the other thing, interesting thing about the seat is it, it borrows or sorry, boundaries with Litchfield on one side and the East Midlands on the, on the right-hand side. So if we can win Tamworth in a similar year to 97, I would say, minus the lacking money in the economy issue, um, then we could probably win Litchfield. Uh, and that would put microfabricants out of a seat quite nicely so um so yeah it's it's a really interesting one and if we can just overturn even with a majority of one so if if michael sorry i i I, because i can't see you i i interrupted but it was only because you made me think if michael fabricant loses his seat will he pass his hair on to the (laughs) (laughs) he's got three um Do you know something? That's the first time we've ever mentioned Michael Fabricant on this podcast. <laughs> Seriously. Thanks for that one. Oh, no. um, but it's like if we can get, say, thinking from east to west, if we can get Lincoln back and Litchfield plus Tamworth. Definitely get Lincoln back. That's basically yeah, kind like that. of where British democracy kind of properly started, if you think about the Anglo Saxons and that kind of stuff. And it'd be really interesting to see what, what happens. Um, not least with uh, the wood powder, but um, there we are. Well, I think that's um, bringing us uh, to the end of the the sort of the main things we wanted to discuss. Is there anything else? Uh, any final words from you, Malcolm? Uh, yeah, just just a massive thank you to Owen for giving us time. Really enjoyed your your commentary. Welcome back anytime. It's always nice to have an extra an extra voice. I'm sure listeners get sick of me and Carl. Um, and it'd be great to hear it. I'm sure they'll be glad that they've heard someone new. So thanks very much for your time, and uh, I hope people enjoyed you what you had to say. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with, Owen? Uh, go to Arthur Glen, go to Litchfield slash Tamworth, uh, and also down to Nadine Dorry's seat, and help us win. Basically, <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna be a, a busy few weeks a month, I think. Do you plan on going down any of those zones? Is that something on your um, well, we've been encouraged to go to Rutherglen, so I may have to sort of flow the uh, real director's writ on that one. But um, but yeah, uh, hopefully Rutherglen and then possibly Tamworth. Well, that brings us to the end for this week. A massive thank you to Owen for joining us. Thanks for listening, and hopefully you will tune in next week. <laughs>